I immediately thought that I'd like to speak about the elder son, because I'm the elder child in my family, and I don't cause my parents too much trouble. When I've heard about this parable in the past, it is traditionally be seen as Jesus teaching about a loving father, a rebellious younger son, and an obedient elder son. However, as we have just heard from the reading, the first few verses tell us that Jesus was talking to two very different groups of people. One was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who represent the elder son, and the other group was the sinners and the tax collectors represented by the younger son. I'd never really thought about this aspect before. I think it is important to remember that the previous stories in this chapter are the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin. They are both about lostness. Therefore, if the story about the sons is also about being lost and is addressed to two groups of people, it made me question which of the two sons Jesus is actually saying is lost. The whole teaching of the New Testament is about the fact that we are all lost and that relying upon the keeping of the law, which is what the Pharisees did, isn't the way to be saved. So I think that Jesus is saying that both the sons and both the groups they represent are lost. But what does being lost actually mean? Verse 13 says, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And verse 28 says, the, young, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. We can see from these verses that both sons were separated from the presence of the father. This means that they were relying on their own efforts, something the Bible calls self-righteousness. All of this made me think, if Jesus is saying that both of the sons are lost, broken and searching after something, what's the difference between the two sons? I think that the difference between the two sons being lost is about where they're looking for their acceptance and their worth. The younger son looks for self-righteousness in the things of the world and doing things to please himself. But the older son is also seeking self-righteousness but his is through relying on living a moral life and appearing to work hard to please his parents whilst primarily doing it for himself. So now I'm going to look specifically at the character of the younger son. When thinking about this, I've been challenged to see that I am and many other Christians I see around me are a lot more like the younger son than we perhaps wish and realize. In addition, now that I have an understanding of the lostness of the elder son, which Annie will go into, I realise we can actually all relate to characteristics of both the younger and the elder son, looking for righteousness in both moral and secular successes. So what is Jesus trying to help us understand about the younger son? Firstly, the younger son was more interested in what the father would give him than the father himself. He wanted the father for his inheritance and what he could get out of him, not for a relationship with the father. I find in myself that I seek God more when I want something, for example, security and hope when I'm finding the future daunting. Secondly, once he had his inheritance, he left the father and squandered it on wild living. 
In verse 30, the elder son accuses the younger son of spending his money on prostitutes. Lots of us, including me, switch off at this point because it doesn't seem relevant. However, in Jewish times, this was often a way of inferring idolatrous living. We know that the younger son had prioritised the money and what it gave him over a relationship with the father. Therefore, an idol is anything, and often things we think are good, that we look to for our significance and security above God the Father. It is anything we put in the place of God as first in our lives that controls what we do, how we spend our time, and what we truly value. What are the things that you are looking to for your significance and value in life that can be considered idols? It may be relationships, our job, car, house, or the clothes we wear, or how we look, or what others think about us. When I think about my own life, for example, I am often tempted to idolise exam success and can feel that my worth is based on the results I achieve. Also, I am often fearful of what others think about me because I can think that I can get my significance from other people's opinions of me. Thirdly, when the younger son realised he was lost and could not find righteousness in all the things he did and achieved, he remembered and looked to the father. In verse 17 and 18, it says he realised his situation and was determined to acknowledge his sin. This is a great lesson to us, as the first step in experiencing the love of Father God is repenting of our sins. It might seem strange, but I realise that we need to repent, not only of the bad things we do, but also of the good things, where we have been relying upon them for our significance. However, in verse 19, the younger son then says that he would ask his father to make him one of his hired hands. I think that it is easy when we read this passage to miss what a big mistake this is. The younger son is saying here that he thinks he can earn his way out of his sin and therefore work hard to repair his relationship with his father. The irony is that he is trying to make himself like an elder son, who we now know is equally as lost. Therefore, it is important to remember that repentance should never be followed by relying upon our own work and performance. The father's reaction to his son coming home shows us that God's love and acceptance is absolutely unconditional. He really wants us to understand that we can experience that same love and unconditional acceptance. If we think of the worst thoughts we've ever had, the most unkind things we've said or the worst things we've done, God knows about them and doesn't love us any less. The father interrupts his son before he even finishes apologising and accepts him back as his son without waiting for him to finish to pay off his debt. For me, the lavishness and extravagance the love of the love the father shows to his son is a relief, as it means that nothing we do, no matter how lost we are, means that God loves us any less. Having said this, I do know that as Christians we are called to live differently from those around us and put the needs of others first. But how can our lives be transformed without relying on our own work and effort? I think that it is only through a knowledge of the love and grace of our Father God that our behaviour can change. 
So above all, what I have learned from doing this is that I'm a lot more like the younger son than I first thought. Without realising it, I often think that I can earn my worth or significance through my own achievements, forgetting that this will always end in failure. So before I finish, I would like you to think, what are the things that you are relying on for your significance and righteousness? Do you truly know the grace of God the Father? I would challenge you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the love of the Father for you so that you can truly believe in what Jesus has done for you and what he has now made you to be. Thank you so much for Alice. Um, and for the next little bit of the service, we're going to watch a video. And that leads us to ask, has he ever really felt good enough? Or has he ever really felt close to his father? We know that he has worked hard for his father for years, but we can assume from his reaction that his motive through doing so wasn't love. Why? His initial reaction was anger. Feelings sprouted from jealousy. He never felt he was good enough, and this confirms it for him. These feelings had spurred him on to do good and to obey his father, but he was doing good out of expectation and trying to prove that he was better than his brother. He never felt he was good enough in his own identity, so he pushed himself. He tried to be the best version of himself that he could be. He aimed to be perfect, the perfect son. He took the path of self-salvation and self-reliance, whilst his brother took the path of self-discovery and trying to find himself. Both brothers are just as lost, yet one's actions change dramatically. For the other son, because his actions aren't seemingly sinful, we don't see him as the lost son to begin with. Whereas his brother's actions are so dramatic and blatantly sinful, and we can clearly see it and are taken on that path with him throughout the parable, that can often be the only sin that we see within both the brothers. Yet the older son, to me, is even more lost because he doesn't know it. The older son is so full of pride in being the better son that it gets in the way of his relationship with his father. And through that pride, he also blames his father for the wall that he himself has built between them. Yet at the same time as having that pride, he is so insecure and doesn't feel affirmed or happy in himself. As he sees his father running away towards his brother, he sees it as his father running away from him. Yet God's character suggests that he wouldn't do that. The father pleads with him. He shows that he loves him equally. He wants to share time with both of his sons. One son needed celebrating, but the other needed reassurance. And that is what he got. The father never stopped loving the older son. His love is consistent. Unlike the son who compares himself to his younger brother, the father doesn't compare or favoritize his sons. The parable be begins with, there was a man who had two sons. There wasn't a man with one son who ran away and then that other son. Both sons are completely equal to their father. God sees us equally, no matter our actions. As our father, we see his characteristics. He is caring, generous, loving, affectionate, and patient. He doesn't give up and he doesn't stop waiting. And although it might seem like he reaches out to some people more than others, his love is completely equal. He just moves in each individual differently. How the son's father spoke to him was different to how he spoke to his younger brother. 
God knows us inside out and he knows how we are best spoken to. For me, I relate to the older son because I spent a lot of my life doing what was expected of me and trying to be better than others. I found that I was never actually truly happy or secure in myself and the longer I tried to be perfect, the more sinful I became in my motives. I became selfish and self-centered, just like the older son. Yet when I realized I could appreciate others' qualities without comparison, just like God the Father does, something in me changed. God took me out of that sin when I ran back to him. Although many of us might not see our actions as sinful and think we are good people and don't need his forgiveness, God isn't just looking at what we do. He looks at our intentions too. In fact, our intentions are more important to him. He knows that we are going to sin. That is inevitable. What matters more to him is that we keep hold of him throughout that sin instead of relying on ourselves. To keep relying on him means that he has the opportunity to break down those, that wall of pride and being a good person between ourselves and God. When we build that wall of pride, we, the fullness of the relationship becomes diminished and frankly we're left with just being a good person. But relying on ourselves to be a good person cannot last. We do not have the strength to keep going and our father knows that and that is why he waits because he loves us and knows that we need him. So what can the older son teach us? To give up our pride and be confident that God's fatherly love is enough for us to be, in, be secure in and we don't need to save ourselves. He has it covered as long as we ask. We have a father who loves us more than we could ever imagine and who is patient. He will wait. So I want to encourage you to have faith when you might feel jealous or angry at seeing God move in the people around you because he loves you just as much as he loves them. He knows us all better than we know ourselves so don't try to work it out before going to him for a relationship or in order to earn that relationship. He wants a relationship with you, every part of you, the good, the bad and the ugly. I'm talking about the one character we haven't looked at yet, the father. And in this story, we're introduced to a father who has two sons, and it all starts by one of them coming up to him one day and saying, Father, I'd like some money. And he doesn't just say that, but he says it by asking for his inheritance, which is a massive slap on the face of the father. His son has just come up to him and asked him to hurry up and die because he'd like his money now. And the father had every right to turn around and say, You what? Are you joking? Go to your room or to say, no, you're waiting another couple of years. But he doesn't. He decides that his son deserves the choice. And so a couple of days later, after his son has sold his half of the estate, the son leaves. And at this point, their relationship could not be worse. The son has just asked that his father be dead, essentially. And so we fast forward a little bit. And in verse 20, the father sees the son coming back. And this tells us a couple of things about the father's character. When the son left, that a little part of the father left with him. And that father was always looking for his son to come back. And that means that he was waiting. He was waiting for the day his son would come back, knowing that his son would return. And this wasn't just waiting for a couple of days or a couple of weeks. This was waiting for his son to have gone to another country, his son to have gone through all the wealth a huge famine to have hit, 
His son then took an entire job in the meantime and then had to come travelling back to another country. All that time passed and the father never stopped waiting. And the father at the outset probably knew his son wasn't going to make the best decisions with this money. He probably knew that what his son would spend the money on would not be what the average father wants the average son to spend money on. But that doesn't change the fact that the father waited. The father knew his son would be coming back having messed up. But the father was willing to wait. And so when he sees his son off in the distance, he decides to run. And running then is not like running now. Running now, you decide to put on a nice t-shirt, some shorts, and then you go running. And they're all branded so that you go as fast as possible. But back in the day, those those weren't around. The father would have been wearing a big old robe. And for him to run, he would have had to pick up the hems of his robe and just go for it. The people around him would have laughed at him. They would have said, what on earth are you doing? Your son has just left you and asked that you die. And now you're going to humiliate yourself, yourself in front of everyone. The father knew this. The father knew that his servants were going to look at him and say, mate, we're your servants. We're supposed to be doing the running. And everyone would, he would have been just ridiculed. But he runs anyway. And when he gets to his son, his son just instantly up and apologises. And the father almost cuts him off and says, no, stop it. I'm going to put a ring on you. I'm going to put my best robe on you. I'm going to put sandals on your feet because you are my son. You cannot change that. And the father doesn't know what his son has been up to at this point. They've not had a huge conversation about everything the son has done wrong by now. He just says, you're never going to change the fact that you're my son. And he then throws a party. He doesn't wait for the son to say, no, I need to earn this all back again. He doesn't wait for the son to offer to pay. He just throws a party. He doesn't even think about where the money comes from. And that is the father's love for us. That just so long as we're back, he wants to throw a party. And I don't know about you, but if I threw a party, I'd want to see it out to the end. But right away at the party, the father knows something is missing. He's already looking for the other son. Not the one that was lost, but the one that always belonged. He was looking for them both. And when he sees he's not there, once again, the father drops everything. The father goes out to the field, and we're told that he pleads in verse 26. He pleads with his son. And I don't know about you, when was the last time that your father, your boss, whoever, came up to you and started pleading with you? It's difficult to think of a time for me. But I can only imagine that that son, at that moment, it felt pretty good to have his father pleading with him. And he could have turned around and given him a nice long list of all the things he wanted in return. But he doesn't. He thinks he's right at this point. He goes on about everything that he has earned, how he has stayed loyal all these days. He's slaved away, and he should be the one that gets the party. And the father turns to him and says, I think you've got it wrong. I don't think your heart's quite where it should be. And so he asks him to come in. But we're not told if the other son does or not. We're not told that the other if the other son dropped everything and came in, or whether he stayed out. And I think that's because of one thing. Jesus doesn't think it matters. Jesus, God, our Father, he doesn't care where we're at. And it doesn't matter what we choose. The Father still goes out to him and gives him the choice. And that's how much God loves us. And either way, whether we identify more of the son who's a million miles away, the son who comes back knowing he's lost, 
or the son that feels like God's working for everyone else, but not for him. Either way, God loves us and wants us to come in and have a party. And it can be difficult for us to accept. Some of us seeing God called our father, we don't always have the best relationships with our dad. And it can be really difficult if we don't feel like we talk with our dad much to see God as our father, as our all-loving father. But I think this story shows that God is the perfect father. How we feel about our dad is irrelevant. God is always there for us. God always loves us. We can't change that. We can't mess up enough that God says, you know what, you're on your own. He will always run to us. And he always, always wants us to come home and have a party. Thank you.